0: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a market market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'd be willing to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach. So call me 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Where the heck did the sellers go? What happened to them? This is a question we don't ask often enough on days like today, where the averages roared. The Dow gaining 186 points, the S&B jumping 0.99%, and the Nasdaq pole voting 1.41%. Remember, this is a market of stocks, after all. And markets are all about supply and demand. To get an explosive move higher, you need buyers to pay up. We recognize that. But you also need potential sellers to vanish, and that we don't recognize. Now, I got some theories tonight about what drove today's move, and they all revolve around the disappearance of the sellers, which I think is far more important than the strength of the buyers, at least for the moment. First, there's an absence at last of initial public offerings. I can't overemphasize how much this matters. A lot of investors, especially newer investors, simply don't understand the process or the pressure that IPOs can apply to the broader market. The whole process of bringing a stock public involves finding people who want to buy shares on the deal but are also willing to buy more at the opening or during the day the company comes public. Every IPO involves a substantial capital commitment from the account of 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 anyone who wants to be an owner. Even if you're a big account, you usually can't get many shares in a potentially hot deal unless you put in for a huge amount of stock with kind of a soft commitment, basically saying, hey, I'd love to buy more in the aftermarket. That's really all you have to say. Oh boy, but once it starts trading, you got to start buying. Think about that through the lens of supply and demand. Every IPO represents lots of new supply, right? Which comes in and soaks up capital from these money managers. Capital they can't use to buy anything else. Now, we've had 484 IPOs this year. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's 680% more than the same period last year when we only had 62 deals. It's a gigantic amount of new supply or merchandise of equity. There are a lot of fund managers who want to participate in these deals, but in order to come up with the money, well, if they don't have it coming in over the transom, they need to sell their existing holdings. They're, hey, they're not getting much money at all, so they had no choice. But to sell, sell, sell what they already own. And that put tremendous pressure on the stock market itself. But now we're headed into summer when the pace of new IPOs slow down and that selling pressure has vanished. That's why I always hate to sell in May and go away. I mean, the IPO pressure is always horrible in May. And then it lets up near the end. Which So if you sell, you're going to miss what's going on right now. This is a huge part of what you're seeing today, maybe for the rest of the week. The deals will now be spaced out, so you can expect a lot less willy-nilly selling by hedge funds that want a piece of the next hot IPO, let alone mutual funds. Sure, we had Oatly last week, which went to a nice premium. We had Squarespace. He had another painful direct listing that landed with a thud. Although today, the stock rocketed nearly uh, 10%. Oatly inspired both IPO buying and buying in the aftermarket, but it was only a $1.4 billion deal. As for Squarespace, these smaller direct listings don't put much pressure on the averages, because there's no broker cajoling you to sell other things and buy stock if you got stock on the deal. In short, closing the IPO spigot means the market's no longer being flooded with new supply from newly minted stocks that require selling of existing stocks to get done. Wow. That's great news. Second, the end of the SPAC cycle has been a godsend for this market. There was a period late last year and early this year when SPAC investors thought they had a can't-lose proposition. They they thought it was free money. Once the SPAC stocks started going down after huge rallies, even through that $10 price, individual investors realized the joke was on them. So they stopped buying these things. That's what proved to be the SPAC's undoing, not the SEC, not the lack of quality, the lack of buyers and the excess supply. Take the supply away and you get today. In terms of stock supply, these deals can be unwelcome gifts to keep giving in the aftermarket, too, like the huge lockup expiration in QuantumScape, QS, the electric vehicle battery developer. But at this point, those shares get soaked up typically by victorious short sellers who need to buy in order to ring the register. They short ahead of a lockup expiration, and then they buy the stock. In the end, these SPAC deals have been a pox on the market. I think there are very few of them would have gotten through the traditional IPO process. One of them tonight uh, would would have gotten through. They will not be missed. And if they try to come back again, they will be shunned. Promise me you'll shun them. Please. Third, it looks like investors had so much money that they didn't need to cash out of their savings. Despite the pandemic, highly unusual. You would have thought they had to sell just to make ends meet, let alone try to put money in the market. So just listen to what Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America, told us on Mad Money last week.
1: For people who had less than $1,000 in a
0: bank account, average balance on a monthly basis before the pandemic, they're now running seven times that amount in their account. For people who had between one and 2,000, they're running three times. For people between two and 5,000, they're running two times. So the stimulus has been applied and delivered to the, to the people who needed it most, and that's good. How did people miss that? You know, very rare. You know, periodically, you have an interview. It, it, that crystallized so much to me, and it just came and went. That's amazing information from a huge bank. Now, if you told me that individuals would have that much money in the bank at the end of the pandemic, more than they had at the beginning, I probably would have laughed in your face a year ago. But thanks to multiple stimulus packages, people didn't have to sell their holdings in order to pay their bills. In a normal recession, many investors are forced to liquidate their stocks. This time, we have totally avoided that. Fourth, the sudden downdraft in Bitcoin and all things in crypto seems to be over, at least for the moment. And I think that takes some sellers out of the marketplace. Remember, lots of people buy cryptocurrencies with borrowed money. So when these things go down, they need to put up more capital. To do that, they often sell their other investments, including, say, the S&P. When Bitcoin goes up, that selling goes away, takes the pressure off everything. That's the Bitcoin to S&P linkage I've been talking about. Most stocks can go higher if Bitcoin goes higher. Fifth, earnings season is finally over, except for a few stragglers. Once earnings season ends, buyback season begins in earnest. Now, I know many people lament the fact that companies are repurchasing their stocks high versus where they were a year ago. But back then, they were worried about bankruptcy and a collapsing economy, for heaven's sake. Now, flush with cash, they want to share it with their investors. We didn't start to see these massive buybacks until the pandemic began to subside. The more it diminishes, the bigger the buybacks will be, people. Sixth, Remember when everybody was terrified by higher taxes on capital gains? What happened to that? I told you Biden would never have the votes in the Senate for such a dramatic tax hike. Wall Street's finally realized that's the case. So people have stopped dumping stocks in anticipation of a tougher tax regime. Seventh, if you sell stocks. I mean, what the heck are you going to put the money in? On a day like today, you can see there's a flood of new money coming in over the transom. This is very unusual, even just a month ago. Why? Well, this is index fund money. It's not being over. It's it's not. It's. it can far more have an impact when you don't have IPOs, OK? It's enough to be able to sop up even more stock. Uh, it's, remember, interest rates are so low, I'd rather own a dividend stock, wouldn't you? What else? It certainly helps that we, have no, we no longer have hedge fund managers coming on air telling us that it's time to head for the hills. Nor do we have a CDC head warning again about impending doom and one of the most ill-advised speeches I have heard from this new administration. It's also reassuring to see that Fang plus Microsoft are roaring again because these stocks did get cheap versus a giant new cohort of newly minted tech names that has been fizzling. I know the next question is, well, how long can it last? I got to tell you, I hate that question. It's a trading question. It's about time horizons and being when the market gets hot like this, which is very rare. You gotta be in. You don't just think about when to get out. You just gotta be in, bottom line. If I say it could end any minute, I'd be worse than most of those bears who spout Jeremiahs about how we're all doomed because of inflation. So I'll say stocks could keep running until something systemic happens because the market set up pretty darn well for the foreseeable future. Robert in New Jersey, Robert! Hey, Jim. How are you? Good evening. Oh, good evening, Robert. How are you? Great. I acquired Skyworks two months ago, and uh, we reached a recent high about two weeks ago, 204, and the stock has pulled back.
1: I've been following the stock for a long time and listening to you and in the interviews with Liam
0: Griffin. What do you think? Oh, I like it very much. Liam Griffin has done a great job. The stocks come down hard, but the whole cohort's come down hard. The cohort is starting to reverse again, and with it should be Skyworks probably later because it is more, it's mostly cell phone, but they made a good acquisition. All right, there are a few reasons why stocks were able to rally today, and they all revolve around the disappearance of sellers. We always talk about the buyers. It's the sellers right now that are driving things because they're driving away. Man Money tonight, I'm talking with the CEO of Martin Marietta after his $2 million acquisition to find out what it means to the company. And is it game on for Roblox investors? I'm taking a closer look at the company's ability to head higher. And is the market still going nuts for us? Or is the story going stale? I'm talking with the CEO. So stay with Kramer.
2: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag mad tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnBC.com.
0: As the great reopening goes into full swing. I think the boom and bust cyclical still have plenty of upside, especially if you get them at a discount. So once you to consider the case of Martin Marietta Materials, MLM, the leading supplier of building materials like aggregate, cement, concrete and asphalt, not as sexy as Bitcoin, but maybe more profitable. While well, the stock's given us a nice run since we pounded the table on this one a couple months ago, still down 17 bucks from its recent highs. When Martin Marietta reported earlier this month, the results came in much better than expected. Stocks soared. But since then, it's pulled back to the point where I think you're basically getting that fantastic quarter for free. Plus, this morning, Martin Marietta announced they're buying Lehigh Hansen's Western Region business for $2.3 billion. This is one of the largest deals in the company's history and suggests that management is feeling pretty darn confident about the industry. So let's take a closer look with Ward Knight. He's the chairman and CEO of Martin Marietta Materials. Find out more about the quarter, this new acquisition. Mr. Knight, welcome back to Mad Money.
1: Jim, it's great to be back with you. Thank
0: you for having me. OK, Ward, first, this is obviously very big news because you're moving into what we can only describe as still one more mega region, but perhaps the most probably maybe one of the fastest growing in the country. So tell us about give us a little description of Leo Hansen deal and what it means for the company.
1: Jim, it gives us a brand new platform in the Western United States. Back to your point, we've long talked about the importance of mega regions in the United States, where we're going to see 70 percent of the growth of population between now and 2050. And what this does for us is it gives us a platform position in California. Importantly, these markets are tremendous aggregate markets. If we're looking at the Los Angeles market all by itself, it's around 80 million tons per year. The San Francisco Bay Area, 30 million. Phoenix, which we're also moving into, another 30 million and San Diego at 14. When we compare these to other major markets in which we uh, participate such as Indianapolis, Charlotte, Raleigh and others that are in the high teens, it gives you a sense of how powerful these markets are, and we're also sensitive to the fact that in many parts of the state, in California, there depletion plays of aggregate reserves, and these facilities have a very nice 30-year life to them. So we like how we're going to be positioned in a very dynamic state for a long time. Now,
0: there's two things that uh, one good, one bad about California, uh, from my point of view, when I look at your company. One is that people think that California is insolvent. It's actually incredibly solvent. But the other is it's very hard to build because of environmental regulations. Will that impede what you want to do there?
1: We don't believe that it will. If, if we look overall at the infrastructure plans that California has, number one, they need to move people and goods. They need to move them efficiently. They need to move them in a way that's environmentally sensitive. We feel like we can help them do that. At the same time, there are a lot of people that live in California. If we're looking at housing and overall population of that state, what's going to happen with single-family housing, we believe, is going to be important as we look at overall aggregate consumption because oftentimes we see on single-family housing two to three times more aggregates intensity than we do on, on multifamily. We also think the drag-along effect that we're going to see in California will be powerful. We think it is, in some respects, harder to do business. It also makes it an attractive place
0: in highly regulated businesses to do business if you have a long-term position. Do you think that this will also be something where you can, uh, as your excellent presentation has, uh, build these big warehouses like the Amazon-like warehouses? Because I'm sure California needs as many warehouses as possible for e-commerce.
1: No, large warehouses, large data warehousing as well. You and I have talked before about how important it is having businesses along major commerce corridors. We talked about the importance of 95 and 85 in the east, 40 going east to west. The I 25 corridor in the Rocky Mountains on the Front Range, which is another large mega region, and I 35 in Texas, that's what I 5 is in California. And again, if we're looking at these large data warehouses and others, one thing that you and I have talked about before, they tend to be seven to nine times more aggregates intensive than other big box stores, because in essence, they're a concrete envelope. So again, if we're looking up and down these major commerce corridors, I-5 and the other corridors in California will be very attractive.
0: All right. So, Ward, I have to believe that if there is an infrastructure bill, I mean, California does represent about one fifth of the country, that California would get its fair share. Or if you're a Democrat, maybe you could argue more than its fair share, given who's in charge. Would this play a role in your thinking if you could get the infrastructure bill?
1: Well, it certainly certainly will help. I think there's very little doubt that we're likely to see an infrastructure bill this year. And what's important in that too, Jim, we think this is going to be the most significant increase that we've seen in infrastructure from the federal level in more than 15 years. And to your point, California all by itself is the world's fifth largest economy. So as we look at infrastructure in that state, do we think we'll see a new bill federally? We do. Do we think California is likely to get more than its fair share? We think in today's political environment, it probably is.
0: All right. Now, they were making what about 150 million EBITDA. I have to believe that Ward Nye with the SOAR program is going to be able to get more out of that, uh, out, out of those facilities. But is it possible that they just under earned or, or, or that maybe it wasn't a focus for them? and It could be a focus for you.
1: You yeah. know, well, Lehigh Hansen is a very good company, and we have so much respect for the people who are there. Uh, we know the operations well. We know the teams well. We believe that they're going to fit wonderfully in Martin Marietta. We believe we do bring a unique focus on aggregates, and I believe that we do that portion of our business as well or perhaps better than most in the country and I think we can bring some operating excellence to that business as well as commercial excellence. But it's a very, very good business with very good people. We look forward to welcoming them to Martin Marietta.
0: OK, so how is the rest? How is the rest of the country? You you talked really positively and was very eye opening about the, that, uh, co- the Colorado corridor, Texas to Colorado. And I was shocked that has not been my focus. Is that still strong, that area?
1: That They are particularly strong. Uh, The I-35 corridor in Texas has really been an extraordinarily busy place. What I'd like to to go back and, and look at in Texas, we had a deep freeze that hit Texas in February. It shut that business down, or the state down, in many respects, for almost two weeks. And it almost didn't seem to matter because January was so strong, as was March, which was giving people nice momentum going into the balance of the year, We saw a little bit more winter in Colorado this past year, but that's not all that unusual. It is the Rocky Mountains, after all. But again, if we're looking at overall private and public activity up and down that I-25 corridor in Colorado or the I-35 corridor in Texas, it looks awfully attractive. The other thing that we're seeing in Texas, for example, is cement is basically sold out at this point in Texas. And when you're seeing those types of, of shortages uh, believe me, it, it builds uh, a pretty good economy underneath what we're trying to do right now.
0: Well, Ward, I got to tell you, congratulations on this deal. The stock's up three. That's ridiculous. It's going to be up much, much more. Ward Nye, Chairman, CEO of Martin Marietta. You've just done such a remarkable job here. Thank you for coming on the show.
3: Thank you, Jim.
0: Guys, I know that rocks aren't exciting. I don't want excitement. I want money. MLM will make you money. have money's back in.
2: Coming up. Can the building blocks of a winning portfolio be found in the metaverse? Kramer checks out a company on the vanguard of one of Wall Street's most tantalizing trends. Next.
0: In a market that doesn't have much love for turbocharged growth stocks or IPOs, A few stocks have been able to defy the gravitational pull of the action. Take Roblox, the online gaming platform where tens of millions of users, especially kids, can create their own digital experiences and share them with everybody else. Now, two and a half months ago, Roblox came public via direct listing. It was a low-key alternative to a traditional IPO where they just dump a bunch of existing shares on the market. Now, the stock opened at 64.50, then jumped to 69.50 at the close on the first day of trading. But then it struggled to find traction, spending weeks bouncing between the mid 60s and the 70s. We call that flopping and chopping. Now, we started recommending it 12 days later when the stock was at 70, although it wasn't until a couple of weeks ago that the stock really started roaring. That's when Roblox reported its first quarter out of the gate as a publicly traded company, and the numbers were so incredible that the stock jumped 21% in a single session to 77. And you know it hasn't looked back since? The next day, we spoke to CEO David Bazuki, and he told an incredible, incredibly compelling story. I kind of was blown away, which is why we doubled down on this one, and I chose it as my stock in the CNBC draft pick contest. After a monster move last week, Roblox tacked on another 8% today alone, jumping to just under 90. It's starting to feel like this thing has incredible momentum in a market that generally disdains momentum stocks. And on days when the high-flying tech names rebound like this one, Roblox really roars. So How have they managed to generate such enormous gains when this kind of story has been really out of fashion? Oh, man, out of fashion of late. Will you look at that? Honestly, I think Roblox is just that good, frankly. Here's a company that's part gaming, part accessible software development, and part social network. Wow. They've got tens of millions of digital experiences that you can access for free. Then there's a premium subscription service that gives you all sorts of special features. I love that that kind of tiered product, it seems to always win on Wall Street. Now, coming to the direct listing, though, there was a sense that maybe Roblox was yet another COVID winner. And that's all. A company that did great in 2020 because people were stuck inside with nothing better to do. But after the company shot the lights out with its first quarter results, those concerns, I'm telling you, they've been put to rest. More importantly, Roblox has a terrific business model that relies on user-generated content to bring in more customers. These guys have a community of over 8 million developers, from amateurs to professional studios, all creating content for their platform. They even have their own currency, Robux, to facilitate transactions. Wall Street loves these user-generated content stores. Hey, think Facebook, YouTube, because it's so much cheaper than producing your own darn content. When we spoke to CEO of he made it clear that there's an entire virtual economy where people can turn their hobbies into real businesses, by creating stuff for the platform. On top of that, Roblox has done something extraordinary. They've created a safe place for kids on the Internet. I can't stress this enough. If you don't have children, you're probably underestimating just how popular this platform has become. A major reason it's so popular is that the rare it's the rare Internet property that parents feel safe letting their children use Unsupervised, and that is the key word, unsupervised. The rest of the web can be an incredibly messed up place, especially when we're talking about platforms that run on user generated content. I would normally be afraid. This one does not inspire any fear. Of course, Roblox didn't become uh, child friendly by chance. See, the company spent a fortune building out its safety apparatus, which includes thousands of live support agents who can respond to issues within a matter of minutes. Every other major platform tends to rely on algorithms to enforce their terms of service, but computers aren't great at policing social interactions. As people know, we're following my Twitter feed today, where I'm just praying for something like this. Now, Roblox is growing rapidly with its teenagers and adults too. It's not just for kids, but I think the digital babysitter aspect uh, gives them a huge boost. So let's talk about numbers, because that's more important to Wall Street than all these touchy feelings I just said. When Roblox reported two weeks ago, their average daily active users came in at 42.1 million. Now, this was up 79% year-over-year. They had 9.7 billion total hours engaged, up 98% year-over-year. All of this is fueled by massive growth overseas and from the over thirteen demographic. When you drill down to the financials, Roblox saw its bookings jump 161 percent year over year. These are these are eye popping numbers, people. While the company's still losing money, listen to me—they're generating a ton of cash. Their net cash from operating activities increased nearly fourfold to 164.5 million. Meanwhile, free cash flow was up more than 300 percent year over year. This is probably the most important figure of all of these, maybe any, having to do with the company at least financially. Even though the company has said they won't give formal quarterly or annual guidance. They plan to report out their key metrics every month. It's all laid out in the conference call. We already got the numbers for April. They were very encouraging. You'd expect the growth to slow as Roblox starts to annualize some very tough comparisons because they've now lapped the pandemic, right? But it's really not showing that. It's, it's not slowly at all. For me, this was the most bullish part of the quarter. In April, Roblox's daily active users came in at 43.3 million. That's an increase of a million users from the month before. It is up 37% year over year. Hours engaged were 3.2 billion, up 18% year over year. Bookings rose roughly 60% year over year and about 8% uh, versus just March. Maybe most important, Roblox's average bookings per daily active user what they're squeezing out of each customer, came in at more than $5.59, up roughly 16% year-over-year, up 5 or 6% from the previous month. And people, the parents love this, because think about how little it is. But it sure does add up when you have all those millions of people. These numbers were all much higher than anything the analysts were expecting. If you thought Roblox would take a huge hit from the great reopening, the April numbers suggests that their business is doing just fine. One more point. Roblox has only just launched in China, thanks to a joint venture with Tencent. And the They're already six to 12 months ahead of schedule. That means some Chinese numbers could be included in the current quarter. All that said, there are lots of tech companies that have put up incredible numbers, and Wall Street couldn't care less because these highly valued tech names have been getting killed by the great reopening rotation. But Roblox has seen its stock war. What sets it apart? First, while Roblox is not yet profitable, like a lot of the turbocharged growth stories, it still throws off a ton of cash. Plus, while the company is not yet profitable in terms of its own metrics, some analysts have created their own adjusted earnings. And according to these metrics, the company is actually making a lot of money. But what really matters is that terrific cash flow numbers, right? They paint a very encouraging picture of Roblox's core business. To the extent that they're not yet profitable, it's because they're investing so much more in growing and growing the business, which is what they should be doing. So even though Roblox is operating in an out-of-favor industry, even though they came public via direct listing, something that rarely results in explosive stock price, this thing's been able to roar You know what? I think it's got a lot more room to run. The bottom line, Roblox has created an amazing platform powered by user-generated content, and thanks to their latest results, Wall Street's now confident that this isn't some COVID-fueled flash in the pan. Ideally, sure, you'd like a pullback, but you know what? You have got my blessing to put a small position on right now if you don't own Roblox already. Romeo in Florida. Romeo. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Romeo. I got Facebook at 19. It's going to the 52-week high. I plan to sell it now and then buy it back when it goes down to 290 to 300 I think you're playing too cute, Romeo. I think Facebook's got a lot of momentum. I think it's doing incredibly well. It's got user-generated content. I'd like you to hold on to it and not play like that. If you want to take out the house's money, that's fine. But I think the in-out stuff, it doesn't work for me. All right. Wall Street is now a believer in Roblox, and they should be. Now, normally, I'd like to recommend for a pullback, but you know what? you got my permission to start buying some soccer. Much more mad money including my Susan with Uts. Now, this stock took a tumble after earnings, but I'll find out if it still has the right crunch for this market. Then, are the drumbeat of worries in this market much ado about nothing? I'm giving you my take. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. We've seen an astonishing and somewhat disappointing deluge of SPAC deals over the past year. And while many of them were bogus, there were some excellent exceptions. Take Utz Brands. That's the company behind Utz Potato Chips and Pretzels, along with a host of other brands we like uh, Zaps, uh, on, the, uh, on the border, uh, Tortilla Chips. I like Utz because it's a more traditional SPAC story. They put a pile of money together and they're using it to consolidate the snack industry. Since we started recommending this stock that's run from, 23, from 13 to 23, Not bad. However, the story suddenly got more complicated when Utz reported a week and a half ago. The company legitimately missed expectations, which is why the stock tumbled more than 8% on the news. Plus, as the world goes back to normal, you have to wonder what that means for the packaged food companies like this one that have benefited from the stay-at-home economy. So what do we do here? We have to do homework, of course, which is why we're checking in with Dylan Lissette. He's the CEO of Utz Brands to get a better sense of the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. Lissette, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim, how are you, sir? Uh, Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming back, Dylan. Okay, so obviously you guys were uh, very abject on the conference call. You said you did not do as strongly as you'd like versus the industry. Are there things that have happened even since the quarter ended that would tell me that that's going to change?
3: Yeah, I mean, I thought we had a great quarter. We had top line sales that grew 18%. The bottom line adjusted EBIT. It was plus 30%. We continue to uh, do our story of M&A, we announced a uh, acquisition that's forthcoming to support the uh, on the border brand that you mentioned earlier. Uh, sales were very strong; they continue to be strong on a two-year basis. Uh, we really continue to add buyers; we add repeat rates. So we're very bullish on uh, on the brands and the successes that we've had, and we've got a lot of exciting partnerships and things that are driving sales. So. I really look forward to 2021 being fantastic. I think it'll be a great year.
0: Right. Well, look, I, I, I didn't. I'm just quoting you, sir. I mean, you say from a core perspective over the last two years, our total portfolio growth trends are below the category. I mean, it, all those yeah, things we, would be better break, if it was above the category.
3: Yeah, we break out our sales into emerging expansion markets and core markets. And our core markets are a lot of the areas on the uh, East Coast. Through our m and strategy, we end up um, acquiring brands and sometimes we have to renovate those brands. It takes time. We are moving all of our sales, ideally into our power brands. So yes, in the core market, we are a little bit under the category. So yes, not hundred percent where we'd like to be, uh, but we feel really uh, certain about the growth and the opportunity as we go forward, as we migrate more and more of those sales away from those foundation brands into our power brands like Zaps, like Goods, like On The Border, uh, that we can really grow and continue to expand upon.
0: Okay, what was the organic? What is the organic growth forecast for your company?
3: Uh, year over year, tw- yeah, 2021 over 2020, uh, it's about zero or- percent organic growth because we had such a fantastic year last year. If you recognize in some of the quarters where, um, or some of the 12-week periods of IRI Mulo, we grew 20-25 percent. The category grew. So we really outperformed the category last year. So as we set up the forecast for 2021, it was really about sort of moderate to 0% organic growth year over year, because we really need to annualize those gains from last
0: year. Okay, remember, because I'm just trying to figure out the stock was at 28 and went to 23. I wanted to go, obviously, back to 28. People own the stock, and good to know. I mean, I read a Barclays report. He says, we believe the focus on share loss, losses in core markets is perhaps a bit myopic. I wasn't focused on share losses until Barclays mentioned you had share losses.
3: Yeah, it's a lot of stuff in the core where we, you know, we do have an M&A strategy and we are buying brands. And when we buy those brands, a lot of times we're buying them for the intrinsic value of the distribution, or their manufacturing. So we announced, like an, for example, Vintners in February of t- 2021. That gained us access to the Chicago market. So we're playing a long-term game to gain long-term share for those power brands. But sometimes we're using what we would call a foundation brand to kind of accelerate our ability to get there fast.
0: So uh, are you confident that you're, uh, say, 2019, 2019- you're over 2019. You are going to start seeing some uh, some growth that will not be uh, impaired by weather because you had some weather issues. And also your 80 percent hedged. Are we going to have to worry about the 20 percent? You're not hedged.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, uh, sure. Weather is always something that, um, you, you know, I think uh, uh, many of us were afflicted by the what we call at least internally the Texas freeze. But it impaired a lot of the uh, activity in the southeast. Um, In terms of uh, inflation and um, uh, the effect on it, I mean, there's a lot of pricing power. There's a lot of price pack architecture that we're very familiar with. We've been doing this for a very long time. We're able to utilize a whole bunch of different uh, venues to get price to combat that inflation, which is a real inflation um, coming at us. uh, But I think we have a lot of tools in our chest to be able to map those out and lap those year over year and, and continue
0: to gain share and sales. How about these new uh, 10,000 new outlets, dollar stores, which is a group at Dollar Dollar General was down today, but it's a group that I think is a terrific place to sell into.
3: Well, I think, I mean, you know, really, if you think about the future of grocery, where is it going to be? Or sorry, food sales, where is it going to be? I mean, Mass has been uh, fantastic, driven by the Walmarts and the Targets. Grocery got really strong last year. But as we look into the future, um, yeah, the Dollar Generals, the Family Dollars, the Dollar Trees, there's a lot of those. That are almost replacing to some degree the C store um, business in some uh, uh, geographies, especially more rural geographies. So, utilizing our uh, on the border brand, we were able to strike a deal and actually take those into, as you know, tens of thousands of new stores. And we're really starting to see some nice growth in that brand, especially. Uh, in our core. It's well over uh, uh, 12%, 13%
0: right now that that brand is growing in our core. Yeah, that's going to be fabulous. And how about this uh, new, uh, adding a category of excitement in variety mixes, which I think really fit for for an opening of America, where you get a lot of people over, you start doing things. That's what I thought about this.
3: Yeah, what a great partnership. I mean, Ferrara is a great company to work with. We were very fast. Both of us were motivated. They indicated, they kind of came to us, they said the number one thing that consumers were asking for is a combination of the sweet and the salty, and they're a sweet company. They're not a salty. And I think it's a, um, uh, you know, a testament to Uts and the Uts company. We were very fast to work with them, to partner with them. Uh, Jim, that'll put probably 75 to 100 million one-ounce bags of snacks, of Uts branded snacks, across the entire United States in 2022 a great way to showcase our brand and get it out there and just pick up more customers. And honestly, when we, uh, when we get customers, they stay with us. Uh, our repeat rates, are repeat rates are great. So we're getting those new customers are staying with us. So the, we really look forward to that being an awesome uh, partnership between the two companies.
0: Well, that's great. You've answered all the things that I needed to know. I mean, obviously, it's been such a huge win. There's some people who want to take some profits. They're looking for an excuse. Sounds like you got yeah. a great business going, just like I always thought. Bill Lissette, the CEO of, of Uts Brands, UTC. Thank you for coming on the show.
3: Thanks, Jim. Thanks for
0: having me. Guys, stop. good company. Stock down a lot. I don't know. If you like snacks, I would be with these guys more than I'd be with almost any other snack company. You may have money back in, but-
2: Coming up next.
0: Let's make money together. What do we got?
2: Kramer's bringing the thunder
0: and answering your burning
2: questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round.
0: Before we begin tonight's Lightning Round, we have some exciting news to share. I'd like to introduce a new Kramerican to the Mad Money family, Justin David Solomon. Over the weekend, Mad Money veteran and our dear friend, Linda, welcomed a Healthy Baby Boy. Big brother Johnny's already doing a good job. We're so happy for all of them. And on that high note, it is time. It is time for the lightning round. Gamers, man Money, what's that about? What's that about? And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy? Time the lightning round. Let's go to Bob, New Jersey. Bob. Hi. Uh, first time, long time. Um, I've been in the steel business my entire career. I'm only interested in metal stocks when prices are rising. Can you give me your opinion on Vale? V A L E. I can't believe it. I'm actually going to recommend Vale I'm going to recommend it because I just think that this is a multi-year move. I do like Cleveland Cliffs more though, okay? Because I don't trust that whole country to get it right. Cleveland Cliffs is better. Let's go to Randy in Texas. Randy. Hi Jim. Thanks for taking care. Of course. Uh, I started to before. for, uh, we bought it, you recommended it, uh, for going into this rotation, we've done
1: really well with it, very pleased with it, and considering adding more, but before doing that, I have two questions, number one, what's a reasonable price target for this stock, how far can it go, and number two, is our passage or
0: failing to pass an infrastructure bill in Congress, going to impact Nucor and stocks like Nucor. Okay, listen to me on Nucor. It's a multi-year move. I mean, one of the things that we've seen, when Nucor gets going, it tends to be, remember, it is the best performing stock in the S P so far this year. When Nucor gets going, that is nothing. It's a multi-year move. The moves are either two or three years. So reasonable price target? No. We have to say a reasonable timeline. And the timeline is several years out. Nick in California. Nick!
3: Should be chill. out from L.A. Oh, ho, what's up? So need your help with the position I'm holding at a loss. This company was a rocket ship in 2020, but is down about 40% in the last three months. Meanwhile, they have continually reported growth for the last two quarters, lead the market in the most populous country in the world, and have recently talked about expanding operations and sales into Europe. The stock popped today with yet another partnership announcement for production and distribution. Considering the great EV growth potential over the next few years at these levels, should I add to, hold, or trim my position in NIO, NIO?
0: No, no, no. You should be switching. You should be in Tesla. Remember the piece that we did with Larry Williams off the charts a couple of weeks ago, which said that this is the single best time to buy Tesla right here, right now? That's what you're going to do tomorrow. Ian in California. Ian.
3: Yo, Jimmy Chill. Yo, what's yeah. going on?
0: What's going on? I'm a longtime listener here, a uh, first-time caller. I just got to say, I think you're the man. Oh well, thank I you. you all the thank time. you, buddy. Thank you.
1: So, uh, I bought this SPAC a few months ago, and uh, ever since it's come down considerably, despite a rally today and uh, late last week,
0: uh, they have plans to merge late this month or early June. So, I want to get your take on whether I should buy more, hold, or sell ticker symbol IPOE. That's Sofi, I like Sofi. That's Anthony Noto. He's on this game. I think you're fine with it. I buy some and in that. Ladies and in conclusion of the Lightning round. The
2: lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, is this the most perilous, vertigo-inducing, no-good time to be an investor? Pump the brakes, Chicken Little. Do some homework and drop Nero's fiddle. Kramer's got a Monday cure to the inflation blues. Next,
3: Jim Kramer, you're one of my heroes.
0: Alex look forward to your show every weeknight. Thank you so much for helping beginning investors like me.
3: When you talk about the market, I just believe that
1: you're spot on.
3: Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Every night we watch you, I have learned and earned.
0: Here's what this is not. It's not the 1970s. It's not Weimar Germany. The economy is not going to be wrecked by ruinous inflation. The stock market won't crash because of government debt. I think we're more likely to see a soft landing for the sonic booming economy once the supply chain issues are ironed out and the enhanced unemployment benefits expire in September. Yet the worries keep piling on. I know you see the inflation everywhere. It's at the pump, the supermarket the restaurant, the car dealership, the house hunt. And there's a whole cottage industry of of commentators who try to make you feel like the U.S. government can't afford to keep borrowing like this. And if President Biden passes an infrastructure bill, well, you better break out the wheelbarrows because it's Weimar time. But I think this is all a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. What makes me so confident? First, we recently spoke to Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America. He told us a very reassuring story. The American consumer is both saving at a record rate and spending at a record rate. Uh, that said, the savings seem more robust than the spending. So even with prices rising across the board, the consumer's in better shape than any time I can ever recall in my life. An overextended, indebted, defaulting consumer, which is typically what we have, is dangerous. But a cash-rich consumer is great. The high savings rate also tells you that the baby boomers, who are supposed to be pulling money out of the market by, by like, mad, right, haven't done so to any serious extent. Again, very good for stocks. Second positive, anyone studying the retail earnings this week recognizes that the consumer's acclimated to the new world rather well. Sure, there are some shortages, but I think the buying at the mall and the big box change is exactly what we want. Good, wise spending, mostly so that people can be ready to go back to work or fix up their aging homes. Again, I'm regarding that as rational behavior. Third positive, workers are making more money. Is that inflationary? Sure, but that's not always a problem. I know firsthand that it's hard to recruit labor to small or medium sized business. But think about this. Two years ago, when the unemployment rate was much, much lower, wages were lower, too. There are two things that have changed. 150,000 restaurants have gone under, although according to Cisco, the food service company, that figure's too high. And we now have enhanced unemployment benefits that exceed the minimum wage. Even if Cisco's right about the restaurant industry, there should be a time soon when employers won't be hanging out so many help-wanted signs because the extra unemployment insurance goes away in September. Finally, the big one, commodity inflation. Or I should say dangerous commodity inflation, because there is commodity inflation. Now, we all know there's some serious inflation going on, chiefly in steel, aluminum, and lumber. You know what those three commodities have in common, though? They're all being bolstered by tariffs that are meant to protect American workers. If you want prices for the stuff to come down, you just need to roll back the tariffs. Meanwhile, the semiconductor shortage will get resolved. We already got an inkling of what this will look like when we heard that Applied Materials is boosting wafer fabrication for all, for everything. In fact, Applied Materials is signaling that the entire semiconductor capital equipment industry is boosting production. So don't bet on the shortage to continue through the end of the year. I think that you saw the stocks like LAM and KLA. They're saying the same thing. I, I think that this thing is going to be resolved sooner rather than later. Cisco, when they came on last week, seemed to indicate the same. All right, now. We've also been worried about delays and higher costs from the West Coast ports. But Footlocker said in a conference call that no one seemed to pay attention to that the delays are beginning to ease and they're going to get better as time goes on. What else? Grain prices have soared, but whenever farmers get a big influx of cash, they spend the money on new machinery and expanded plantings, which is exactly what we heard from Deere on Friday. Look, I'm not saying everything will resolve itself smoothly. On Friday, Deere had some jarring things to say about rising commodity and freight costs. Still, when you put it all together, last week was the first time in ages when I thought there was as much good news as bad on the inflation front. Even as few people seem to notice, Chose to notice. There's always someone trying to scaremonger about the risk of inflation. These guys have been consistently wrong for decades. We may finally have some real inflation, but I don't think their dire predictions of financial catastrophe will suddenly start coming true. I'd like to say there's always a the bull market somewhere. I promise I'd find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.